This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First off, it's free, 100% free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. It couldn't be easier. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, what's up, everybody? Chris Trapasso here from CBSSports.com, and you are listening to the Prospect Podcast. I've reached the 20th episode, so I'm taking it in a completely different direction today. I'm going to read my latest column up now on CBSSports.com with the headline, Lessons Learned from Scouting's Hits and Misses from Past Draft Classes. This is my seventh draft class that I've fully evaluated from a scouting perspective, uh, my third at CBSSports.com as a draft analyst, um, and I'm just going to try to give an audio book or an audio column um, for my most recent piece of work. It's a 10-minute read, which I understand in today's world, 2020, uh, 10 minutes to read something might be a little bit too long for a lot of you. So just want to see how this works out. Maybe you'll hate it. Maybe you'll love it and ask for more of my articles to be kind of turned into audio columns. So here it is. Lessons learned from scouting hits and misses from the past draft classes. I had been wanting to write this article for a while. I uh, thought this was a perfect pocket of time to write it right before the combine really gets going. Um, and my editor, RJ White, greenlighted it over the weekend, spent a fair amount of time writing this article. So here it goes. Evaluating the NFL draft can be humbling. You can pour over hours of film on a prospect and consider every available analytic, and in a few years, your pre-draft evaluation proves to have been downright brutal. But it's not all bad. Hits happen a fair amount of the time, too, and you can learn a lot from both outcomes. It's crucial to acknowledge the lessons the NFL's yearly educated crapshoot session provides. These are the lessons I've learned in my comprehensive evaluation of the past six draft classes, the last two here at CBS Sports. Lesson one, don't underestimate arm strength and mobility for quarterbacks. When it has come to quarterbacks, two schools of thought have clashed during every pre-draft process over the past decade. In one corner, the old-school infatuation with size, arm strength, and statuesque passing, all of which are said to represent upside, even if intricacies of playing the position like fine-tuned accuracy, pocket presence, and progression reading are lacking or altogether absent. In the other corner, the new-school adoration for quarterbacks with tremendous rhythm who can rapidly move through their reads and are surgically accurate at the short to intermediate portions of the field. 
the latter being directly tied to the yards after the catch nature of an NFL passing game. It's argued that those attributes are in fact what creates upside and can mask a weak or an average arm. As is the case with most arguments, the truth seems to reside somewhere in the middle of those two overarching thoughts. But, as a millennial, of course, I lean toward the new school thinking, which had concrete modern-day examples as backing. Philip Rivers, Tom Brady, and Drew Brees, chief among them. Although I understood how vital pocket passing was. Therefore, in 2018, I loved Mason Rudolph as a draft prospect. He finished as my top quarterback and the number 10 overall prospect in the most hyped quarterback class since 2004. While he fell clearly below NFL standards in the mobility and arm strength departments, he wanted to pass from the pocket, produced at a high level for multiple years in a spread scheme, and stood nearly 6 foot 5 and 235 pounds. I figured the nuances he demonstrated at Oklahoma State would shine at the pro level but I didn't place nearly enough weight on the limitations generated by his low-caliber arm and relative athletic stiffness when forced to improvise outside the pocket. But the game is won inside the pocket, I thought. While quarterbacks still need to be able to distribute the football between their tackles, the NFL is undergoing a massive shift. Ultra-mobile, ad-lib specialists with huge arms are taking over. Why, though? Teams are using more college concepts, which are more vertically aggressive than the formerly ubiquitous West Coast offense and offensive coordinators are actually accepting their quarterbacks quickly deviating from the play structure because those moments are impossible to predict, especially compared to the robotic movements of getting through progressions, therefore can be impossible to defend. With that style suddenly trendy, Thank you, Russell Wilson, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Josh Allen, and even Dak Prescott. It's obvious mobility and arm strength are pretty damn important. And, ironically, they can mask a lot of deficiencies in the finer details of playing the position. I'm close to labeling Rudolph a colossal draft whiff of mine. While there were flashes, and his supporting cast was marginal at best in 2019, he certainly did not resemble a top 10 prospect while standing in for Ben Roethlisberger. The majority of his worst plays were the result of his inability to, you guessed it, extend plays with his legs and truly drive the football beyond 15 or 20 yards downfield. From Rudolph, I've learned there's a legitimate reason arm strength is often the initial attribute mentioned by veteran analysts and former NFL decision makers turned media members during draft season. In the NFL, it matters a lot. And with freestyle quarterbacking more popular and potent than ever, your pocket quarterback better be able to get creative on the run, too. Applying the lesson to the 2020 draft class, Joe Burrow is universally liked by draft analysts. He's currently number two on our composite CBS Sports Big Board because he excels in areas both schools of thought admire. Although he doesn't have a cannon arm, it will meet normal NFL standards. And the mobility and arm strength specialties of Utah State's Jordan Love are the main reasons he's widely considered a first-round prospect despite a final statistical season not of classic first-round caliber. 
Two years ago, I would have been too quick to dismiss him as a top prospect because of the accuracy and decision-making woes and his tendency to run out of the pocket after his first read is covered. But his athleticism and arm strength won't be ignored. Jacob Eason is listed at 6'6 and has a rocket launcher for an arm. Okay, that's good. But he looks more like a prospect who would have received number one overall pick hype in, say, 2010 or earlier. He crumbles under pressure and, although he isn't Drew Bledsoe when things break down, doesn't have many improvisational successes on his resume. Not good. Tua Tungavailoa has a PhD in the subtleties of playing the position and can move a little. His arm is probably NFL average. Even if he were injured, he'd clearly be behind Burrow on my board. And Jake Fromm is a super light version of Tungavailoa. Not as fast of a processor with less athleticism and a weaker arm. Lesson two, trust the combo of major production and an awesome combine. Film is the most important element of evaluating a draft prospect, but there's one problem with it. Everyone can, and seemingly does, interpret what they see with a player differently at varying degrees. And while we can't blame anyone for trusting what their eyes tell them while watching film, history has shown that even the most brilliant football minds can't come remotely close to nailing every evaluation. Heck, hitting on 50% of draft picks would be a godsend for any NFL team. That's where analytics step in and have a leg up. They aren't really subjective. And in the case of Cortland Sutton, I'm not even talking analytics. By classic statistical measures... He was a production machine at SMU. Sutton caught 49 passes at nearly 18 yards per grab with nine scores as a sophomore in 2015. Then, as a junior, he eclipsed the 70 catch and 1,200 yard receiving marks with 10 more touchdowns and had a hefty 39.3 receiving yard market share. As a senior, Sutton caught 68 passes for 1,085 yards with 12 scores on a team with future, and currently active, NFL wideout, Trey Quinn. Sure, context is needed with all statistics. Strictly box score scouting isn't a method I'd advocate. But occasionally, we get bogged down with context. A wideout with figures Sutton amassed is probably good at football. And even if you weren't aware of SMU's wide-open, pass-happy offense during his time there, you could check his stat line, draw the sensible, he's good at football, conclusion, and assume he would be able to come at least close to repeating his collegiate success in the pros. Then, you add in a stellar combine workout, and man, the film can seem like a distant memory. At the combine, at just over six foot three and 218 pounds, Sutton ran a solid 4-5-4 in the 40-yard dash, but dropped my jaw in the Indianapolis Convention Center media room when his 6.57 time in the three-cone drill was posted. That placed him in the 96th percentile among wideouts at the Combine since 1999, regardless of size. Quicker than essentially every high-quality receiver in today's NFL. Talk about the ability to change directions and explode. His vertical still ranked, ranks in the 50th percentile, and his broad jump is in the 75th. Sutton, quietly, tested like an athletic freak 
and was very productive for three seasons in college and boasted great size. While I loved his high-pointing skills and run-after-the-catch capabilities on film, the statistical and athletic evidence were huge indicators to me that Sutton was going to rock in the NFL. He was my number one wideout and number five overall prospect in the 2018 class. Somehow, he lasted until pick number 40 that year. And now he's well on his way to being Denver's number one pass catcher and is fresh fresh off a 70-plus, 1,100-yard-plus receiving yard campaign with a gaudy 8.97 yards per target average. Also, importantly, missing on DJ Moore is part of this lesson. He had more than one year of huge stat accumulation at Maryland and knocked his combine workout out of the park. But I wasn't enamored with his film, and he finished as my number 10 wideout and number 70 overall prospect in that class. He's been a monster in Carolina in both of his two seasons there. Applying the lesson to the 2020 draft class. It'll be a few weeks until the combine works its magically predictive powers, but I'm keeping a particularly close eye on those wideouts who've been highly productive for multiple years at their respective schools, like Jerry Judy, CeeDee Lamb, T. Higgins, Tyler Johnson, Denzel Mims, Isaiah Hodgins, Gabriel Davis, Antonio Gandy-Golden, and James Prochet. Of that group, I'll be looking to see who double dips on the two objective portions of the evaluation process. And this lesson works for essentially every position, not just wide receivers. While grades will fluctuate based on observations made during extensive film watching sessions, the prospects who produced at a high level for more than one season and have excellent combine workouts relative to others at their position have a decently strong likelihood of being really good in the NFL. Lesson three, keep evolving with the league. When I got into scouting NFL players, I figured it made sense to, after a few years, create a handful of tenants to follow every pre-draft process. Rules to dictate which prospects I liked or didn't like. But I've learned through my hits and misses that the only tenant to have is don't have any steadfast tenants at all. Well, if there is one tenant I've adopted, it's to keep evolving with the league. For example, I initially gravitated toward big, power-forward type wide receivers during a time in the NFL when Calvin Johnson, Brandon Marshall, Jordy Nelson, Julio Jones, Des Bryant, A.J. Green, and Demarius Thomas were owning secondaries on a weekly basis. Unsurprisingly, I adored bigger wideouts, some who flopped in the league like Doriel Green-Beckham, Josh Doxson, and Marcel Aitman. But the league has changed to being more separation-based at the receiver spot. Gotta get open. Big receivers aren't completely defunct, yet consistently generating separation is much more valuable to the vast majority of clubs than the occasional high point in traffic. Quarterbacks today like to see their target open before ripping it much more than they did in the past. Block shedding used to be atop my priority list while watching linebackers. Now it's coverage by a wide margin. Pancake blocks for offensive linemen in the run game were cool. Stoning defensive linemen in pass protection is now way cooler. And who knows how the league will evolve. In the not-for-long league, 
the changes don't take five to 10 years. They happen in a flash on a yearly basis. It's why I've changed the weight of each of the five skill trait categories upon which I grade for each position every draft cycle. And I'm open to replacing categories with new ones based on the way the game is being played at a given time. While it's impossible to know precisely what makes a quality player at any position, I believe it's imperative to continually tweak how I view every position, skill and trait-wise, applying the lesson to the 2020 draft class. Looking for new age prospects is key. Linebackers aren't 6'1 and 245 pounds anymore and must be able to cover. Pass catching is now a major component of playing running back in terms of adding value to an offense. Quarterbacks don't need collegiate experience under setter or reading the entire field from inside the pocket. Safeties are part linebacker, part slot corner, and still have to carry out traditional back end of the defense duties. Run defense doesn't matter nearly as much as pass rush ability for defensive linemen. Blockers have to thrive in pass protection more so than for the ground game. And every year, some of the refined skills and natural talent needed at each position will change. All right, I'm Chris Trapasso, and that will do it. This was the Prospect Podcast.